Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 212, recorded for May 17th, 2023, the Cloud Pod sings a duet about AI. Good evening, Matt, Ryan, and Jonathan. Hey, guys. Yeah. Hello. How is it uh, going this week in the cloud for you guys? As long as we don't have to sing, I'm good. <laughs> oh, I signed you up for the duet, so it was definitely you and and Jonathan. I thought the harmonies of the British this would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to make a Monty, Monty Python song about AI. That'd be hilarious. That would be good. <laughs> Chat GPT can get to work. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, Bard would be more appropriate for this because Bard, you know, Bard's a poet, so it'd be more appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I want a good song. That's in the after show. <laughs> yeah. You're making promises for that after show that aren't going to get fulfilled. So, <laughs> yeah, and we can get you know Grimes voiced to, uh, to to sing it for us. Since apparently she she said that anyone can use her her likeness to generate oh. AI, AI uh, music, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm. That's interesting. All right. Well, we do uh, we do have uh, many cloud stories this week. Uh, so first up, Terraform Terraform Cloud Service is making several updates to their Terraform Cloud capability that provides access to premium features for up to 500 resources in the free tier, as well as new paid offerings for management capabilities, scaling concurrency, and enterprise support, as well as consistent billing metrics based on managed resources across tiers. New features include a premium security feature such as SSO and policy as code on all tiers, included in the free, making it easy and frictionless for smaller teams and organizations to get started with their first use cases. And finally, updated paid tiers provide easy upgrade paths for organizations as their scale as their usage scales up and down uh, to move between the tiers. Uh, so, one of the things that I would point out in this is that they did change the pricing model to now include per resource charges, uh, which may catch you by surprise if you have over 500 devices. Uh, you can stay on your legacy models, but of course, the big carrot here is SSO and Sentinel OPA support. Uh, but do be aware of what that trade-off is before you switch your license type and then suddenly start paying for your thousands and thousands of resources when you just pay for users, which apparently uh, is a realization by HashiCorp that uh, it's harder to delete your resources than lay off employees that you're paying for in Terraform <laughs> Cloud. Yeah, I mean, the licensing for for Terraform products for cloud in both enterprise has always been rough, right? Like starting off per users, um, you know, for, for cloud makes sense. And I, at some point for enterprise, they had switched to per project, not users, because they figured that out very quickly that what everyone did was just sort of link it together behind automation pane. You know, so there's a single server that's running the, uh, the Terraform apply and then it's, it's really cheap. Um, but then per project is, are, it creates some really weird edge cases where people are putting too many workloads into a single project in order to reduce that number. And then, you know, a lot of the advantage is managing the access to that project. And so now everyone has access to your project. It's really hard to, to write policies at that level. Um, and so it just sort of defeats itself. So while it sounds terrible, I wonder what, like in, in practice, like I'm hoping that this is sort of a reasonable cost per resource. I mean, it's definitely one of those things that you, you know, you don't want to fight against the cl- the native cloud pricing model that you already sort of have. Um, you know, the resources are basically uh, I don't know, I can't do the translation to the proper level of decimal points here, but it's a zero, three zeros and a fourteen uh, per hour per resource. So I mean, like you're talking about on a monthly basis. Um, let's see, 
let me do some quick real-time math. You're basically paying 10 cents uh, a month per resource. So it's not like it's a crazy amount of money today in the standard tier. Now, in Plus and Enterprise, we get more features. Maybe it costs more, but that's the only thing we have on their public website right now. Per hour. That's, that bothers me slightly. Yeah, store the state somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they do. And that's fair enough. Yeah. I get that. So we just have to create our stuff and then orphan everything and just delete the workspace. We get the stuff <laughs> deployed for free. And then just import it all back in again later. Hey, I got a script that will dynamically create Terraform code based on deployed resources. So sure. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. What could go wrong? I just hope it doesn't force people into weird patterns, you know, or like, you know, got some accountants saying, hey, you know, you've got to cut down your resources, adopt these weird, these weird patterns of Terraform uses just to make it a little bit cheaper. I mean, again, like for, I don't, the devil's in the details of what they consider a resource, right? And is it every single thing? I mean, 10 cents per EC2 instance. Hmm. Like, yeah, I get 10 cents worth of value out of Terraform, not having to manually do that stuff. So like, you know, but then like you get into like S3 buckets and like, mm, I'm definitely not going to get 10 cents of value out of an S3 bucket every month. So well, even, even take EC2, like it's the, the, the volume that's a resource that it's attached yeah. to. The security group is a resource that it's attached to. There's the, the rules before yeah. each, each rule for the security group is a resource. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to get a single instance under five resources, you know, of many, many different things. Like even Lambda and when you start considering, you know, considering VPC attachments and, and versions and all of that, it I balloons out real quickly. Yeah. So it's tricky. The one the one thing I do like here is that they're getting rid of the SSO tax. They are giving you security at the base level. So while it does sound like it's going to be a little bit rough with the pricing, especially on exactly what they consider a resource, giving security at the free tier, I feel like is a very nice feature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Policy of code, especially like, you know, one of the gigs I worked at, like that was the thing that made us purchase enterprise was that the ability to do that. Well, and I think we talked about on the show before that, you know, Sentinel is a really great capability, but it was locked behind a very expensive tier of licensing. So mm-hmm. that's why everyone's kind of running towards OPA as an open source alternative to it. But now this kind of unlocks Sentinel as well. I, I can use Sentinel again because now it's included in my license tier mm-hmm. that additional cost. So that, you know, it's not a terrible choice by them. It's just, again, how does it all work out in the end? And it would be nice if they would declare which are what they consider to be billable resources versus just supportive resources. I think that's probably the next evolution of maybe this. Just, I do think there'd be some pushback on the pricing. Mm-hmm. It's the only go forward model, though. Like, I mean, I really don't. I don't think there's any any other ideas other than you know, being able to build by resource and then define the types of resources that you care about that are included in state. It's not bad. I mean, ten cents resource per month. It really isn't bad in the grand scheme of things. You're going to spend two thousand dollars on a server. What's what's ten cents? Well, I mean, but again, like as as Ryan said, it's. It's really five at minimum. It's five things, and it's probably even more than that. So it's it's probably more like four to five dollars a month per server when you factor in all the pieces. If they're billing you for every single resource, yeah. right? Like that's that's the hope is that they're 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 calling it at some sort of sane level where it's like the the EBS attachment that the you know is attached to your EC2 instance if you're an Amazon. That's that's not a resource. It's an attachment. You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, it would be nice if they had in the Terraform pricing some details on that because uh, that is probably the big question here that I would have out of this is what's the what's the resource considered and what does it look like? 
I've asked this question of many a vendor in cloud cloud realms because the, this I think this is going to become more and more popular because it's really the only thing that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. everything else becomes too burdensome if it's doing percent of spend or if it's um, by, you know, I remember when it was per AWS account for a long time, like that was awful for when you started to enable you know, a larger organization. And so this is really the only go forward plan because it works for every layer, including, you know, people outside of enterprise. Yeah. They need to start to do like example pricing. like the cloud vendors do like, mm-hmm. Hey, in this situation, the, this is what it would be. Here's your example. Here's your price, you know, and kind yeah. of work it down that way. That needs to start to be things that more vendors include when they post these things. The Terraform cloud cost and usage report is going to be awful. <laughs> Maybe they'll use the standard format. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> God, I hope so. <laughs> it's going to be like Datadog. Like I had to figure out my Datadog pricing. It's yeah. like 75,000 dimensions of pricing complexity in Datadog. <laughs> I was asked recently, hey, if we move to Datadog, can you give me a rough budget line item? And I was like, no. Yeah. No, no, I can't. I don't even understand what all the items on the website are talking about, let alone figuring it out without running it through. And then at the bottom of their documentation literally says, just go launch it in your environment for a few days to get pricing. And I'm like, that that doesn't feel useful. Yeah, that sounds like a way to spend a lot of money very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably less than 65 million, but you know, maybe not, yeah. not by much. <laughs> much. That's, why I, that's why I went with New Relic. Because honestly, I looked at the pricing comparison and I was like, this is a lot easier. Data and users, I can calculate those. I cannot calculate this data dog mess. Mm-hmm. Although it's funny is that, you know, no matter what you choose, like now the next hurdle is, is evaluating that new relic and its integration points and the cost that they can come with that. Right. Mm-hmm. So you incorporate that cost, which you'll see on your cloud provider of pumping metrics into new relic. And so it's, I wonder why FinOps is becoming so popular. I don't understand. Because it takes <laughs> a PhD to understand finances yeah. at this point of these cloud resources. Uh-huh. Especially if you're in a multi-cloud environment because there's no standard format for the... I mean, we know we talked about FinOps has released a standard format, but no one's adopted that yet. So right now you have you know all the complexities and like in Amazon, right? They An AMI can include a Windows or SQL Server license, but in Google, they break it out on a separate line item. I don't know what they do in Azure because I don't look at Azure bills. But, uh, you know, license, I, there's so much complexity. Yeah, well, in Azure, it's, you know, the price of the resource and then there's a separate line item for licensing. Yeah, the same way as on Google then. So, yeah, 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 makes sense. I mean, Google had a copy from somebody, so clearly it wasn't Amazon because we know they screwed <laughs> that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, all right, well, let's, uh, let's talk about Amazon, shall we? Amazon Aurora IO optimized cluster configurations with up to a 40% cost savings for IO intensive applications are now generally available to you. The new cluster configuration offers improved price performance and predictable pricing for customers with those IO intensive apps, such as e-commerce applications, payment processing systems, and pretty much anything that has SAP on it. Uh, you can now confidently predict costs for most IO intensive workloads with up to 40% cost savings when your IO exceeds 25% of your current Aurora spend. If using RIs for Aurora, you will see even more savings than the 40%. Um, that is your floor by moving to this instance type. So if you're spending more than 25% of your Aurora bill on I.O., uh, this might be a good service for you to check out. SAP can't natively support Aurora, right? Like, I know it's compatible. Yeah. I know it would probably work, but it would... I mean, it would support yeah. the Postgres, because yeah. you can connect SAP to Postgres, I think. I'm so. just... Would they actually support it? 
Like I know it would work. Mm-hmm. I mean, supportable yeah. versus workable. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I digress. I, I know that you know. I had a friend that set up Aurora right when it first launched years and years ago. At this point, and they quickly moved off of it because the I/O was costing them more than the CPU on their actual cluster. So it's nice to see that they're actually you know trying to fix some of these issues and hopefully make it be a little bit more predictable too. Yeah. I mean, anytime someone uses PyOps, you always know you're in trouble. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that's kind of the default model of, of Aurora is, yeah, we give you this really fast storage, but it, it, you basically pay not quite PyOps prices, but pretty close. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, especially, you know, adopting sort of the serverless model of these things. Like it's really, you know, it starts getting into that value uh, add, which is nice. And so it's, I love that the, you know, addressing the cost savings, which, you know, we think in Amazon terms is just how they, how they achieve scale. Um, like it is pretty nice to see. So I have a couple of workloads. I'm going to try this out. It makes sense. I guess the predictability of the workload means that they can, that Amazon themselves can, can better kind of put customers in buckets for, for IOPS. Um, and so they can, they can manage capacity better. Whereas customers with very bursty workloads, they, they always have to make sure that capacity is available when they need it. Whereas, um, you know, so they probably have like some some headroom spare which goes unused. So I guess it kind of the cost reduction probably is a reflection of how Amazon can optimize sort of arranging customers on the back end more than anything. Okay. Honestly, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. On paper. <laughs> mm-hmm. You say it with such confidence. How yeah. can we refute you? Yeah, I like Aurora. I do too. It's uh, if I if I wasn't too cheap to use Aurora, I'd use it for the website. But uh, I just run MySQL on a container <laughs> with the other containers that run the rest of the site. Because <laughs> so, I'm cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, private access to the AWS Management Console is now generally available. This will allow you to access the AWS Management Console from your on-premises network using a secure private connection to AWS. It is apparently easy to set up and use, and can help you improve security and compliance. The uh, Benefits of this are, of course, improved security and compliance. I just mentioned reduced costs uh, is you don't have to go across your NAT gateway if your internal systems are making connections, improved performance, and increased flexibility. If you're looking for a more secure, compliant, cost-effective way to access AWS resources, then private access to AWS Management Console is a great solution for you. Allegedly. Or it's a good way to lock yourself out of your console. Yeah. I mean, this it, it has to be better than the previous way that you would enforce this control, which is by doing a conditional on IAM permissions based on your, the client's IP address. And so like, it's terrible because it's just like, everything works fine, except for you go to do something and then all of a sudden everything turns red. Uh, so I kind of like this from that perspective. Um, a lot of companies have, have that control, right? We're not allowed to really access an admin panel, which the console is from, you know, an external network. And this is a way to sort of gate that access. I, mean, I prefer the SSO way, but that's my my preference. So your Okta, then Okta validates, you know, yeah. IP address you're on, and as well as uh, you know your user credentials, and then you can basically do it through that method. I mm-hmm. never really cared for the IAM way <laughs> either. Yeah, but um, yeah, again, if you're not doing SSO, which I think it would be the way I would do this, this is a good alternative option. Mm-hmm. I'm more curious about the reduced costs here. Does the AWS console really cost that much to? I mean, if no, you're doing a lot of a lot of calls no. to it, maybe, but probably not. No. There's no <laughs> but, way. Again, the console, not 
the API is so yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It just feels mm-hmm. like a weird what they threw in there. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. cool, reducing costs, but really, yeah. Well, I mean, if you're using a VPN, I guess to support your IP restrictions, maybe that saves you some. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Or point to point, yeah. I guess. I don't. Nah, that's a stretch. I agree. I'm just trying to think of the one customer that's like, this will save us X tens of thousands of dollars a month and really want to know what they're, what they were doing. Well, instead of, you know, doing event-based architecture, what they did is they just scraped the console page every five minutes. There was a company years ago. You always have a horror story for my ridiculous claims. You're like, oh yeah, no, I did that. <laughs> no, I think there was a uh, a client years ago that didn't allow anyone in. And essentially it was, you had to log into the console via this other page and random things just wouldn't work because they hadn't set up the, pro- the, the uh, like API calls against it. It's like random things just wouldn't work. I think it was called like Skyfence or something. Oh, okay. I gotta find it. <laughs> well, I was looking for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's move on to Cedar. Uh, so apparently, Amazon is releasing support for Cedar to let you write and enforce custom authorization policies. Cedar provides a simple and intuitive API and SDK that makes it easy to write your policies. Cedar supports a variety of authorization models, including role-based access, attribute-based access, and capability-based access control. Uh, Cedar is apparently highly extensible, allowing you to customize and meet your specific needs. And it's well documented. It has an active community of users and contributors. And it has a pretty snazzy website. It's green. I like green. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Uh, yeah, I'd love to see more cool things around identity and auth for sure. Right? Yeah. I mean, I'm. I, this is the first I'm hearing of of this kind of concept, and I'm I'm loving it. Right? Because this is one of those things where. If you're building your own app, like the, I dread sort of the authentication flow, right? And so I'm always trying to leverage some other party for this, and so it, which puts me in some weird boxes sometimes. And so it's kind of kind of cool running something that's I didn't write and have to rely on my own sort of design for security and and access control. Like that's fun. that's awesome. Yeah. The uh, the examples they gave, you know, this tiny to do user policy thing, it's it's pretty great. It's a cute little app, and it you know gives you a very simple way to how to use it in a client, uh, like a Python client or a Rust a server. Uh, and it's not a not a bad little example of how to do it. So yeah, it's uh, I, I love all this. You know, ever since CDK, everybody's rushing to make all these things less code, uh, but not you know restricted by cloud formation. So I'll take it as a win anytime it's not cloud formation. Yeah. All right, Matt. Did you find what you're looking for? I cannot. I'm still looking for it. No way. I'm, I might have to phone a friend of uh, Peter to see if he remembers. Ah, all right. Well, that's fine. <laughs> Low probability, though. It's probably better off that no one actually knows yeah, the name yeah. of that tool. So I think it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Amazon SageMaker Inference now supports provision concurrency for serverless, which allows you to set a specific number of concurrent requests that your model can handle. This will help you to ensure that your model is always available to serve requests, even during periods of high demand. Provision concurrency is available for both batch and real-time inference models. And to use provision concurrency, you need to create a SageMaker endpoint with the provision concurrency mode. You can then specify the number of concurrent requests that you want your endpoint to handle. And the provision concurrency or Amazon SageMaker service inference is priced based on the number of concurrent requests that you provision. And you can choose provision concurrency for a single model or for multiple models. 
The cost per provision series per hour and your bill for the hours that can series provisioned. And it'll cost you between a penny an hour and 10 cents an hour, depending on what it is and how you're setting up. You can use savings plans for this. So if you want to save some money, you can do one year and three year savings plans opportunities. And the more you commit, the lower your price. Seems to be becoming quite a pattern, doesn't it? Of uh, move away from service, have serverless, it's on demand, you pay for what you use. But also now you can have provision capacity because we realized that that didn't actually work for people. Well, it's not that it didn't work. It's that the people having to pay for this do not like spiky, unpredictable workloads, right? Like a lot of the provision capacity isn't because you run out of capacity. It's, it's, it's for consistency. And so like you, if you're going to use this, use it, right? And then we'll baseline the provision part so that we have a consistent cost model. Um, because otherwise we have no idea what our costs are doing. We don't know when it's out of control or we don't know when it's normal. And it's, so a lot of this I think is, is less about actually the, having the capacity to execute than it is actually just standardizing and, and re- removing those big spikes. Yeah. It's kind of frustrating in a way. It's like the, the old, like if you don't use your budget, you'll lose it kind of thing. Well, the flip side of that is, so if you pay for provision capacity that you don't use entirely, now you're just wasting money mm-hmm. in the name of, uh, predictability. It's a very difficult challenge, right? Yeah, because it's there's a sweet spot, right? You don't want to over allocate. You don't want, and you definitely don't want to make a three year commitment and pivot away from it. Right? That's yeah. Like, I remember when Google did that for their storage, though, where where you, they, you sort of they look at your previous costs for the for the last year or last period of time, and then they basically charge you the same amount and then make an adjustment once a year to like renormalize how much you're paying for for cloud storage. It was a way to iron out those those bursty uh, cost changes. It'd be kind of nice if they did that for all these all these things, really, mm-hmm. so that you would eventually kind of tend to paying the price that you would have for on demand without having to pay for the uh, provision capacity. Mm-hmm. I feel like it would probably get abused. So, like, if a person had like an event where they do like nothing during the year, and then they have like a big event at one point, you know, they would have such a massive spike for a period of time. So, like, if there was like a monthly event or something, it might be like, or like a yearly event, like it might not actually capture it in a way that's meaningful. I, I think it's this is where I want AI to solve this problem for me because I don't want to think about this. <laughs> like have into provision, unprovision, committed capacity versus non-committed capacity, cold start versus no cold start. I don't I really have to not think about this. So I hope AI comes and solves all these problems for me at some point in the future because I don't want to deal with it anymore. We're gonna be something so lazy as, oh, yeah. as a species. It's gonna be awesome. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy doesn't like to wear pants. Yes, I understand <laughs> your I understand your joy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, for those of you um, who are really into Android phones and who were super excited about their new foldable Android phone, uh, they may have missed the Google I.O. cloud announcements. And so I'm here to help you out. Uh, there was two big areas of investment, of course. And since the entire theme of Google I.O. was AI, uh, of course, the first things up was new AI features. <laughs> Uh, so first up, they announced uh, Cloud Auto ML Natural Language, which makes it easy to build natural language processing models without any machine learning expertise, which is definitely the version I need. Uh, Cloud Auto ML Vision Edge, which enables developers to build and deploy custom vision models on edge devices. Cloud TPU V4 Pods, which are powerful machine learning accelerators that can be used to train larger and more complex models. And Cloud ML Engine Pipelines, which make it easier to manage and monitor machine learning pipelines. The Cloud AI platform, which is a unified platform for building, training, and deploying machine learning models. And these new products features are designed to make it easier for developers and businesses to deploy and de- build and deploy AI and machine learning solutions. And they also demonstrate Google's commitment to AI and machine learning, which are two of the most important technologies of our time, per the article. So there you go. 
You wouldn't know it, would you? <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't know it. It's sacred. It was definitely very uh, AI focused, but I can kind of see why. Just yeah, I, I think that's going to be the theme of pretty much every conference this year is going to be very AI focused. I so wish I, it was I, only this year. I think it's yeah, going to be the next three. Well, I mean, I think this year you're going to get all the really like lightweight use cases like, hey, we're going to take our documentation and put AI around it so you can find help docs better. And then next year will be where you're actually like kind of cool solutions with AI. But uh, yeah, it'll it'll be a few years of lots of things, I'm sure. Mm, I mean, ChatGPT is great. OpenAI is great. In fact, I was really interested to see a, another model that they've built, which converts text to um, G-code, basically, for building 3D models. So you know you can oh, just wow. ask it to ask it to build your model of a thing, and it, it generates the code that you can just three D print, which is awesome. Wait, it, in language you just yeah. say I want a yep. cup that's this size. Oh, exactly, wow. I want a thing that looks like this that does this, and it'll make something for you, which I thought was kind of cool. But I think, I mean, Open AI is great, and they're definitely hugely innovative, and they'll become very profitable. And what they don't have though is is like the existing device base, like Google does, and if mm-hmm. Google do. If Google get barred right on Android phones with integrations mm-hmm. into existing apps and people's lifestyles, that that like accelerates them from the crappy Google Assistant that they have today to, to being something truly amazing. And if, if they get somehow here first with that before Apple or anybody or Samsung or anybody else, it, it's going to be hugely profitable and, and uh, life-changing for people. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. The, the breadth of the Android user base is going to be like, that's such a, such an advantage if they can capture that. Not so. It's awesome. I mean, I can use it more than just set timer or set an alarm clock. Yes. Well, now it can, now it can <laughs> ask you if you meant to set an alarm clock, you know, Hey, you didn't turn your alarm on this morning, but usually you get up at seven o'clock. Do you want to set it for you? <laughs> <laughs> at seven o'clock, it's asking you that question. Like, thanks for waking me up. And I didn't want you to mm-hmm. appreciate that. Uh, the, the next Google Cloud uh, item is the launch of, uh, we talked about BART a few weeks ago, had additional programming language support, but now they've apparently introduced that into Duet AI for Google Cloud, an always-on AI collaborator that provides help to users of all skill levels where they need it. Uh, Duet AI is on a mission to deliver a new cloud experience that's personalized and intent-driven and can deeply understand your environment to assist you in building secure, scalable applications while providing expert guidance. Uh, there's three capabilities uh, of this out right away. First is code assistance, which provides AI-driven code assistance for cloud users such as application developers and data engineers, and provides code recommendations they type in real time, generates full functions and code blocks and identifies vulnerabilities and errors in the code while suggesting fixes for you. The chat assistant to get answers on specific developer or cloud-related questions. Users can engage with chat assistants to get real-time guidance on various topics, such as how to use certain cloud services or functions, or get detailed implementation plans for their cloud projects. Coming after your CCOE run. Mm-hmm. And then Duet AI for AppSheet will help you create intelligent business apps, connect their data, and build workflows into Google Workspaces via natural language. I'd like to sign up for, the, for that. It's in limited access. I'd like to see if we can sign up for it through mm-hmm. so our uh, GCP partners, whatever. Um, but really, it's kind of like the machine that's going to build the next machine. We're yeah. getting, we're get, yeah, we're laying the foundation for that. I do believe that you still, since you have to ask the question, I think my CCOE business will be safe. <laughs> that's, that's half the challenge. I yeah. uh, that's really all I want anyway. Yeah, I want a thing that does this. Oh well, that's mm-hmm. the you know composer service. You need yeah. the composer. Oh, okay. Now I know what to look for in the docs. Like yeah, that is that is part of the battle. But mm-hmm. if you can describe to it like, hey, Google AI says, and I need something that can take events and do things with them. 
Yeah. Like, what's the, what do you suggest? And it goes, oh, I'll, I'll suggest to you Composer as a potential option. Maybe I'm waiting for the like the next gen of this, where it's like the mystery K robots just sitting at the bottom of the screen as you're typing, making comments, criticizing you. Clippy's going to be yelling at you. Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah. You called that a piece of code. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, one of the things they announced at Google I/O that I don't have a story here for us, but uh, they announced uh, integration of Bard and stuff into Google Apps, uh, and you could subscribe for the beta. And so uh, I got the CloudPod uh, Google Workspace into the beta. Oh, nice. So uh, actually, most of the show notes today were written by AI. So. That's fantastic. I just asked it to, like, here's the article. Uh, can you write me you know, five or six bullet points on this article to summarize it? And it produced most of what I'm talking about today. So it's kind of awesome. <laughs> right, so next week, we'll just, we'll just get our voices into yeah. some kind of voice-generating service, and we'll just exactly. have the podcast run itself. Yeah, Profit Yeah. <laughs> And I still won't finish the transcription, but you know, like, yeah, <laughs> it was like, it was like three 30 or record at five. And I was like, I'm behind. And like this little button is in the thing and you can push it. And then when you push it, it, it's, you say like, Hey, would you like to do you like to, uh, suggest content for you? And you're like, yes, I would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just paste right into it. Like, here's the URL. Will you summarize it for me? And it did it. So it's pretty nice. Uh, I did tweak some of them because uh, some of them it didn't do a good job on, but I'd say 90% was good. Yeah. So. It's a huge enabler. Like yeah. um, coding, I use it all the time because like every time I have a regex question, like I, I'm, I'm giving up on ever learning regex, right? Like I just, yeah, I have to admit defeat it. at this point. It's not worth it. And so now like, it's great. Cause I can just say, I want to find the fourth comma or whatever, you know, like, and it's just like, yeah, okay, here's the thing. And I'm just like, this is such, this is awesome. Mm. That's one of the things I learned about chat GPT, having played with it, especially for writing code is that if you ask it a, a simple question it'll give you a very simple answer mm-hmm. don't don't ask it right don't don't say write me a python function that does this tell mm-hmm. it tell it who you are what you're doing what you're trying to do you know give it as much context as possible and then ask the question and then ask it to fill in the details and it's it's um uh, it's it pretty much and it's it's funny because it's like don't get too far into the implementation right when you're talking when you're interfacing with it if you get too far into the implementation it takes that and it does weird things but if you if you just ask it simple delivery of things it actually does a better job because it doesn't doesn't infer all of your implementation details into the model. It is really fascinating. I, I like how it's making me change the way I ask questions to computers. So surprise, surprise! Did you test out the uh, the SQL stuff I sent you yesterday? Um, I started to. That came, that, <laughs> that was that came, that came out of ChatGPT. Nice. And See, I tested. It. I didn't even think of that. You're genius. And it gave um, it gave the the SQL query. It gave examples of of the different tables and the output that you'd expect. Oh, I was fantastic. like, <laughs> that's it's great because not only um, was I already like me a culping because after spinning my wheels for for a, a day and a half, like I love the fact that you know I now I've learned that I can just ask the the, the computer for that now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so I was uh, one of the podcasts I listened to was talking about. Apple Watch, and for those of you who've ever used an Apple Watch, it's a pretty horrendous user experience. Um, <laughs> and they were talking about one of the big challenges is complications and like setting up complications on your watch, which are basically little widgets that you can set like weather and t- you know stock prices and different things. And they were saying it would be really cool if you could like use Chat GPT or something to like basically create your watch face. Like, uh, yeah, like a watch face that has you know my like the temperature over on the bottom right, and I'd like it the middle to be my upcoming appointments and and like if you expand that out and start thinking about like reports or 
pivot tables in Excel, like things that are like things that like I can do them. Do I like doing them? Hell no, I don't like doing them because they're they're paying the butt. But if I could like use ChatGPT to like write most of my pivot tables for me, like I might become a better Excel user. <laughs> um, yeah. So like they're like these are the things that you're like this is starting to like open up to me now that I'm like. When you start thinking beyond the basic chat GPT stuff, like I'm going to create a script, which is the writer strike issue. Um, you know, and you start thinking about like, how can I actually use it in my day job? Like it gets kind of interesting really quickly. Cause like, yeah, if I could, you know, tell it, I want you to create me a chart that has this data from my cloud bill and I want you to show where I have a break even on this or that. And it can do that. You know, I don't want to, I wouldn't just send that data off without reviewing it. I think that's the key, key first step is you have to validate the data, but. If it can get you 80 or 90% of the way there, that's really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's where you're going to see it. it's going to be native in the tool. You're not going to go to ChatGPT and ask a question. It'll just be in Excel, right? Here's exactly. your pivot table that you want. <laughs> like, you're not even going to ask it. It's just going to tell you. I think it's the way that all good technology goes, though. To begin with, you kind of have to understand how it works to be able to use it. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, it you know, reaches some kind of point of maturity where you don't need to know how it works to be able to use it. And that's... And this, really what um, generative AI is going to solve for us. Mm-hmm. We need to yeah. know what we want from the inputs, but we don't need to know how the sausage is made. Mm-hmm. So we're going to use chat GPT to help us understand our cloud bills. And then at one point we're going to need chat GPT to help us understand the chat GPT bills. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> let's, let's just hope it doesn't realize it's very expensive and turns itself off. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if uh, someone's working on a Corey Quinn model for for bills. <laughs> like the Duckbill Group has, you know, AI models that they would yeah. sell for your bill. That'd be kind of awesome. Yeah, I was thinking more of like Corey lending his his voice to AI. Well, I mean, there should be a Corey Snark bot yeah. for one hundred percent. Yeah. ChatGPT tells you it's turned itself off because you're not using it enough, and it's not going to pay for itself for this month. Yep. Good times. All right, well, let's move on to Azure and services we hate with Elastic Cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Almost made the show title. Not quite this time. Oh. <laughs> uh, of course, Elasticsearch is the new uh, partner of the Azure native ISV service, uh, which means it's basically fully integrated into Azure and can now infect all of your Azure experience with Elasticsearch. So that's great. Uh, there are several new capabilities. They just launched this last week for this capability, including support for Azure Kubernetes service, which makes sense because that's where all the money comes from because Kubernetes is a loggy bitch. Mm. Integration <laughs> with Azure Synapse Analytics, support for Azure Active Directory authentication and improved performance and scalability. The third one, that AD integration, I feel like that's sort of like basic 101 of having an integrated service with the Azure native console. Just personally, I would think that, but apparently that was not part of the initial rollout. So there you go. Now I know what was in the initial rollout versus this one and why that wasn't the first one. Well, given Elastic's model, it was probably just locally configured users. Like they've made you pay a premium for that sort of ability for years. And they still do in their enterprise product as far as I know. Yeah, single sign-on. Yep, single sign-on tax. SSO.tax. I was starting to think more highly of of, uh, Azure and Microsoft, but choosing... Elastico as a partner when they could have used OpenSearch? It's not a partner. It's the Azure native, you know, they're offering the Elastic service within their marketplace. So uh, this is it. They have an ISV program. People can pay money to be a part of the ISV program. Elasticsearch paid enough money. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Now, I mean, this is, you're, this is one of those things like 
if yeah if you're choosing technologies you know like there are alternatives but if you're embed already with Elasticsearch, at least this gets it part of your cloud bill and your committed spend and it makes it someone else's problem to host and you can deal with it. All you can focus on the, you know, the fact that sharding your data is really hard and not the other parts that are also really hard. You know, when people are addicted to drugs, it's, mm. uh, like we don't just say, well, here's a drug dealer that's got a better deal. We say, maybe you should move off that and try to do something else. I mean, Oracle? <laughs> SQL Server? <laughs> SQL Server? Any of these? <laughs> Couchbase? I forgot about that one. Yeah. Fine. Mongo? <laughs> no, not Mongo. But yeah, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> no, we should have a Cloud Pod t shirt with like all the different database technologies just scratched off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like an airplane with like the the targets, the spanner, the spanner, <laughs> spanner, and Aurora just consuming all of them. Like, just this is the only two you need. Just these two. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect, only to have them be poached at the eleventh hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring. Well, I have a simple solution: Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Foghorn certified AWS, GCP and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. All right. Well, uh, there's some new things in Azure Files, and for those of you who don't know what Azure Files is by that amazing name, it's a fully managed file storage service that provides SMB and NFS file shares, which is highly available, scalable, and durable. Although I did not see an ultra premium tier for Azure Files, so you know I'm sure it'll come later. Coming soon. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, new features this week in releases for Azure Files is a support for Azure Files Sync, which allows you to sync files between Azure Files and your on-premise file servers. Something you might need for migration. Azure Files now supports Azure Files Premium, which offers higher performance and scalability, but no Ultra, but Premium is there. And Azure Files now supports Azure Files Edge, which allows you to deploy Azure Files to your Edge locations. Uh, the cost of this will depend on your on several factors, including the type of storage account you choose, the amount of storage you need, the performance level you need, and the region. Uh, for example, a standard storage account with one terabyte of storage in the U.S. East region will cost you $12.50 per month. Uh, that does not include your network data transfer costs, which probably are high. It's fascinating they have an edge feature for this because um, it, it's one of those things where it's like what, and then you're like, well, I could think, I can see how maybe if you're if you need to use a file system for edge storage for like I don't know a, a cache file or or something along those lines, and you don't have full control over the app. That's kind of interesting. I like that model. It's a Windows server with this with the SMB share. <laughs> it's DFS. <laughs> it's been around. It's been around for twenty-five years at this point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey, things that you know. So is yeah. uh, you know, Zed and Ock. Do you want to manage a Windows server? Because I don't want to manage a Windows server. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised they weren't the first people to offer this service. Right. 
Does any of the other cloud providers have a file at the edge service? I don't know the file system well, at the edge. You have storage gateway. Yeah. But that's that's not more of a caching appliance, isn't it? Yeah, that's like on prem or in the or in AWS. It's not gonna be like at a edge location. What do you mean by edge location? <laughs> <laughs> you mean replicate it to a server in somebody else's data center? A different just a different location. Well, I mean it depends because like you have uh you have the you know, AWS on edge solutions where they're, you know, at a telco provider. And mm-hmm. then you also have your own edge where you, you know, put a telco thing in your warehouse. Uh, and then you also have what, whatever that thing is where you deploy EC2 instances in your data center as an edge solution. Yeah, outpost. Outpost. Yeah. Outpost. Yeah. 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 So you have, you know, yeah, edge is a very fluid concept. Or you just use the CDN. The cloud full of sharp edges. <laughs> <laughs> That would be a good show title. Why'd you come up with that earlier? <laughs> <laughs> Not a bad price. Yeah, we need a sticker. Twelve dollars. What what's that? Do I buy a thousand for a terabyte? Yeah. Pretty cheap. Yeah. Not bad. Well, the Azure database for MySQL Flexible Server now supports major version upgrades. This means you can now upgrade your database from one major version to another without having to rebuild the entire database. Thank you, goodness. The upgrade process is fully automated and takes care of all the necessary steps, including data migration and schema changes. And to use the major version upgrader, you must have a subscription to Azure Database for MySQL Flexible Server. You can also find more information for the upgrade in the Azure Docs if you want to learn more about this atrocity and what it means. <laughs> well, I don't want to know how it works. I don't. I want nothing to do with it. And I like just make it, please, for the love of all that is holy, make it somewhat reasonable. So that even if it's an upcharge, I'll use it because I do not want to manage these upgrades. Terrible. If you can roll back, that's nice. If there's less mm-hmm. downtime, that's nice. If it syncs ahead of time before it does it, that'd be that'd be kind of cool. But saying that it does all the necessary steps, yeah, I don't think so. There's a whole lot of testing involved in major upgrades for my sequel. La 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 la. All the upgrades. It said all the upgrades. I'm just gonna click the button. La 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 la. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Friday at 5 o'clock, and I'm turning on my <laughs> cell phone, we're pressing the button, and we're going out of town. <laughs> to be fair, that's that's an AWS problem as well, because it's, you know, I can count several occasions when people just clicked a button, well, it just said click here to upgrade, and then you click it. Mm-hmm. They have mind the cloud formation or the Terraform that deployed it in the first place, which yeah. will try and roll it back and then fail. <laughs> yeah, no, it is it is one of those things, like, you have it orchestrated for sure. Wasn't there supposed to be a Terraform way to fix that so that if you have like an automated maintenance schedule to do point releases that it would update back to Terraform or is that oh it's still you know you'll have a uh, basically a, a drift that you had to go correct in your Terraform files yeah, you can tell it to ignore yeah or ignore the attribute ah ignore the attribute that's right lovely still not a great fix yeah I also love the one that where you you know you restored the art you know a database using RDS from a backup but then any any changes in the future now think it's going to use the same backup and I'm like no yeah. no not really <laughs> yeah little little things that you like I like to use a lookup instead which then you're like you look at the lookup code for Terraform you're like oh I do not want to use a lookup <laughs> I don't have time for that <laughs> custom resource <laughs> yeah that, no that's worse <laughs> that's just worse uh, be careful you're going the wrong direction it's ten cents now if you do a lookup actually then. <laughs> <laughs> then when you do the restore or you do the Terraform plan, it'll say like, oh, your database is, cha- is changed because the the backup from last night is newer than the one you created the thing from. 
So yeah, there's really actually no good answer for that problem yeah. other than ignoring. Undo, undo. Yeah. <laughs> there's certain things like this, like a database that like, while I like Terraform and I use it for a lot of things, sometimes I'm like, maybe the database we're just going to leave on the side or we'll mm-hmm. launch its own Terraform workspace and just, just leave it over there. Just don't look too closely at it. Yeah. There are, uh, there are things that you should not do. Like I, uh, I recently updated my Terraform VPC module. That was a fun mistake. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was a ter- using the open source should, one. It should be an easy change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Using the, cause like, cause they, uh, they apparently, uh, added into default the four to six converter into the, into the VPC subnet. So it'll convert, uh, V6 to V4 and vice versa. Uh, but if you're not prepared for that, it breaks everything. <laughs> so that was, a, I had to go figure that out. I was like, what, which of these seven changes it made is the one that broke this horrendously. And it happened to be that one. But, uh, that yeah. was a fun 25 minutes of my day. One day when I was helping my buddy out, I was like, Ooh, I should not have done that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. things happen. That, the, the open source VPC module is a, is an awesome module. It really is, but they mm-hmm. kind of need to understand breaking changes and backwards compatibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They yeah don't use solution. that without version locking. It will yeah. burn you. <laughs> yeah, well, this, this happened to me that I had a... I, I, my Mac made me angry one day, and I said, screw you, I'm reformatting you. <laughs> and so I did that, but I forgot to back up potentially the configuration for that Terraform. So I had a, I had the stub. I don't, most of what I needed in GitHub, but I didn't have the lock file in GitHub because I somehow excluded that. And so, yeah, when I installed all the dependencies of the Terraform init, it downloaded the latest version of the module, and then it was like, you had to update. I'm like, oh, what could go wrong? Yeah. yeah this is Famous last words. Famous last <laughs> I mean, it, words. Yeah. yeah. You were well on your way out, down that path by that point. I, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like all the open source modules for AWS always have that problem. The Kubernetes one, we, we've run into that in the past of like, cool, let's just update from like three to four. And you're like, how bad could this be? And then you're like, Oh no! How do we get out of this? I mean, there's there's nothing to it, right? Because it's there's there's so many changes going on in across all the cloud providers that you have to update those things. They have to introduce changes. It's really difficult to introduce changes that don't just completely wedge your active resource as compared to state. So it's yeah. it's a challenge. Well, the other big thing that's really important is uh, to make sure you keep your Terraform up to date because having to move like multiple versions of Terraform forward is also very painful so if you're also trying to troubleshoot a module at the same time you're also trying to roll forward a terraform to like terraform i don't know what version is now three i think Mm -hmm. uh yeah that's just a bad day it's just a bad day in general and i don't recommend it yeah it should be simple it's not simple (laughs) yeah but i don't want to talk about it because it's just embarrassing and resulted in (laughs) 25 minutes of downtime while i figured out four to six so you know that's all that's all you're gonna get about that that (laughs) so we're not getting justin did a thing segment not on that. <laughs> I, have one, I do have one coming up next week, though. Uh, I tested uh, several automated diagramming solutions for cloud. Uh, yeah. uh, I, and so I, I tested uh, three different versions, mostly uh, from a friend of the show, Sarah, was saying, I need a way to document our, our environments. And I was like, well, I have a personal environment. I can go try mm-hmm. these three tools before I having to go through a, a very lengthy security VR process and all kinds of things found out they're terrible. Uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll share that next week because that was a fun adventure as well. Yeah, I've never found any of those that worked well. So I'm curious. I did find one that was decent. Uh, not mm-hmm. perfect, but decent. And then two that were yeah. really horrible. So, I guess I'll have to join next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or at least listen to the episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, let's move on to our cloud journey series. Uh, we are talking about, uh, we're still in cloud native and we haven't talked for this for a few weeks, but this is managed services this week. So managed services, of course, in cloud native are supposed to be things that help you reduce your costs, increase your agility, potentially improve reliability, unless you're in France, uh, reduce complexity, <laughs> complexity and improve your overall security. Um, and so, you know, I thought we would talk a little bit about um, your guys' experiences, managed services. But, you know, where do you think these where do you think these apply, and where do you think they they fall down for us? Reduced cost is interesting because I think they they can enable better architectures. You know, thinking about like serverless and event driven architectures, which don't cost you th- don't cost you anything. That could reduce costs versus running something twenty four seven. However, managed services in general are really not cheaper than running them yourself. It's just a matter well, of where you, where you spend the money, I think. I mean, you have to calculate the ROI differently. Exactly. Because like an RDS database, for example, you know, yes, you're, you're offloading SQL Server management or MySQL management or Postgres or whatever flavor of database you're using uh, to the cloud provider. Uh, so maybe you have 10 DBAs and now maybe you only need six DBAs. So you have an ROI there because you were able to do a less ROI less DBAs or have DBAs do more valuable thing. You don't have to fire them necessarily. Uh, and maybe they're focusing more on like performance tuning and things that are app specific versus infrastructure specific. Because a lot of things they do are very heavy, un, you know, undifferentiated heavy lifting like backups and train log rotations and setting up DR sites and clusters and all these massive pain in the butt things that you have to do uh, to manage a database at scale and at high performance and availability uh, and that costs people and time and effort. And if you can focus on just your app, then you save money. But that ROI is not a direct ROI because that database costs, you know, 20% more than that database would have cost you on EC2, but you have less headcount required to support it. The other problem was, or not problem, but the other thing with costs is that a lot of times people be like, oh, I just, you know, can go install MySQL on my EC2 instance or, you know, and go from there. And then they're like, oh, well, if I move to RDS, I want multi-AZ. So they don't always compare apples to apples when they start to do some of the cost analysis because they're like, okay, multi-AZ is a checkbox here versus now I actually need to run two servers and everything along those lines. So some of it's also you get a lot more out of it, you know, and now it's a lot less you have to do. But because of that, you're like, oh, I want all these other features because hey, it's easy to do. Why not? But there's cost to that. I think the orchestration is the thing because like you say, one server is easy. However you do it, three servers is hard and the, the it's worth spending the money on a managed service when it literally is just a click button to do those things. Oh, you want to deploy a new cluster? You want to replicate to a different region? Check the box and it's, and it's done for you. Whereas most people, I would say most businesses probably don't probably aren't going to spend the time building that type of automation that they need, although they should. I mean, if they can't take advantage of a managed service, they, I, I agree that that having a control plane to manage uh, applications to that layer. I mean, preaching a choir here because me and Jonathan <laughs> yeah. have built one for Elasticsearch. Well, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, like it's it's important, right? Like it's it's it is one of those things. And yeah, I'll spend. I have never done that cost equation where you where you add up all the the total cost of ownership and include like the ongoing maintenance and upgrades and all that stuff where the managed service is more expensive. Just never has happened. And I keep trying, but uh, yeah, I mean, managed services are so easy to leverage and they just free you up to do so much more interesting things that it's worth it almost every time. I did a rough cost analysis of it and, you know, more just, I wanted to leverage the auto update feature 
um, in Azure. So it automatically just you know swaps the boxes with the latest image. Um, think SM, SSM on AWS that's able to like automatically run the Windows updates. And I was like, okay, this is taking us X number of time per X region times, you know, number of servers. It was like, we were writing scripts and we had scripted it all out, but I still was like, someone still has to kick off the scripts and then sit there and scripts don't always run right or, hey, the server didn't come back up or whatever. And for what we were running, it was, you know, 40 to 60 hours a month versus leveraging that. And that was a small use case here of just like a single feature. Now you start to do that across many features that you wanted. Okay, now you want backups and, and all these other things. You know, it's gonna take a lot more time. Makes sense. What other um, as you think about managed services, are, are there things that are advertised as managed services, <coughs> Elasticsearch, uh, <laughs> that aren't really managed services or don't actually help you in this cloud native story? Because yeah. I think the yeah, you know, there's lots of cloud native <laughs> things that are advertised that way, but aren't really cloud native. Mm-hmm. You mean like on Azure where you have to tell it the number of servers that run your load balancer? Yes, that's a great example. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot yeah, about that. No. I forgot about that. I thought they fixed that a long time ago. That they were. Uh, it depends what technology you're using through the load balancer and how it will actually handle it or not. Um, if in sometimes it can't handle it, if you're using certain technologies, then uh, you have to do a static set because it will drop all connections and stuff like that. Um, Azure has quite a few things that I would expect to be more, you know, dynamic and more managed service You know, like, hey, there's these limits on storage accounts where you get so many metadata calls about the, you know, file times and stuff like that, that you have to kind of understand, you know, it's on AWS, it's kind of the equivalent of three, what is it, three IOPS per gigabyte? That it was, um, you know, so there's still some of, but there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot more of it on AWS with like storage and load balancers or either that or I'm just really lucky I run into all these fun edge cases, which is highly plausible. Well, I mean, even the IOPS thing, it's, it's not, you're not managing that, right? It's, that's the, that's the way they, they communicate the, the expectation of performance, right? They give you the option to do all the other things, so. Yeah, I mean, it's there's all kinds of things. Like, and you know, one of the things I like to consider is you know stuff that doesn't scale to zero, right? Like, that's it's always a tricky sort of conversation to figure out if that's a truly managed service. If I have to sort of consistently sort of turn it off and turn it on, or it's costing me money, um, you know, that that sort of you know those types of things. I mean, that's that's the one of the better problems to have, I suppose, but. I mean, if, if somebody gives you a, a Terraform or CloudFormation to deploy a thing, does that make it a managed service just because you can turn it on and off and you can change variables and update things? No, no, no. That, that, sorry. No, it's not just the ability to turn it off and on for sure, but yeah. I'm just I'm just thinking things like um, uh, like Composer, for example, Google. Mm-hmm. You know, Yes, you can deploy it using an API, but really all it's doing is dropping a bunch of other stuff into mm-hmm. your projects. Composer is a great example. Which you still have access to. So, you know, in, in a way, it's it's too exposed. So I'd say it's kind of a managed service and it's it has its you know evolutionary path that it's following. But right now, if, if, if it's deploying things and exposing them to me and I can tweak with them outside the management plane for the managed service, then I'm going to say that's not really mm-hmm. as managed of a service as I would like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like, that's my biggest gripe with Composer is that it's, 
it's pretending to be a managed airflow service and it's not. It's a it's a deployment template with a big like, like warning sign that says your your mileage may vary. You know, like kind of thing. And you're like, <laughs> eh. anything else you want to say about managed services? Reduces complexity is a hard one. Kind of. It moves. <laughs> it, reduces, the it removes the complexity I know about and replaces it with its own unique complexity. <laughs> well, especially in the Google world, we've learned. You know the networking at Google does not actually fit well with managed services in all cases. Yeah. So there are uh, there are definitely things that you know can cause you some impacts. With the complexity piece, it's also you know you have to understand you get to fit their model in order to really make it make sense. So like mm-hmm. if you're going to use it, use it for what it's designed for. Don't try to like make it work for you and like kind of use some edge case because all you're going to do is burn yourself. Yeah. Do not shoehorn your use case <laughs> into any provided technology, right? Never ends well. I think security is an interesting one, though, especially thinking back to the uh, Log4J exploit and the immense value everyone who uses AWS got from the fact that they managed that effectively, quickly. And, um, you know, imagine having to do that to 2,000 servers yourself. And that was all done behind the scenes for you very quickly. And it wasn't a nightmare. And there weren't big stories about huge exploits or anything else. So ha- having somebody else be responsible for that piece, uh, for security of something which otherwise you'd be responsible for, kind of under the um, shared responsibility agreement, um, is awesome. I was really surprised by that, you know, because that, that is outside of the shared responsibility boundary in, from my take on it. But they did. They they. They managed at the the AMI level. It was kind of cool. I mean, they also got a heads up because, you know, I'm thinking Heartbleed and whatever the other one was. They knew about a lot of these things beforehand because of the scale of the infrastructure that all these hyperscalers run. So it's kind of also another benefit of a managed services. The odds are if there is a log for day vulnerability, they're going to know about it and probably start patching it before even anybody else in the world knows about it. Yeah, and they've certainly got the orchestration they need to, to do those massive rollouts at, at that kind of scale very quickly. Yeah. Agreed. Well, that was, uh, you know, there's not a lot to say about managed services in my opinion. Like, they're, they're there, they work, they're a service, you should take advantage of them if you can and, you know, your experience will vary depending on the limitations and the capability of what you need in your application. But they are great enablers and great speed boosts that can get you moving faster and take away complexity in some ways. But you know, be warned of Ryan's comment. There are other complexities you get, um, as well as you know, things aren't always up to date. You know, like if you look at EKS, for example, we've mercilessly mocked it many times for being many versions behind. That's been kind of resolved in the last few years, uh, where they've you know, at least last few releases where they've gotten much better at that. Um, yeah, so you, you know, sometimes they don't get updated. So do be careful of that as well. And, and those are things to think about as you think about these managed services. Um, but I think core infrastructure ones like serverless and, and uh, Fargate and some of those type of things, I think are really great investments. Be careful on the databases because they're not really as managed as they seem. <laughs> and uh, you know, experiment as you go into these, these journeys. Yeah, and I, I guess sometimes they come with constraints which aren't present you know, natively in the products because that's just the way the cloud chose to manage things. And so even if you choose managed service for you know non-production or for development or testing or whatever you want to call it, proof of concept, it may be a great way to start. And maybe you'll decide in the future that you want to change it and manage it yourself. Um, but that's okay. 
it was a tool while it lasted. Mm-hmm. Great. All right, guys. Well, we'll see you next week here in the cloud. See you later. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. All right, uh, I have an after show today that's uh, right up Ryan's wheelhouse. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so the information had a had an article about uh, Marissa Meyer and if she could eclipse herself. And uh, of course, this is related to the fact that she's now the CEO of Lumi Labs, um, where she's been, I think, since 2018 or 2019. She started this company. Uh, they've you know started creating applications and things. I think one of their first ones is a contact app to help you keep your contacts up to date on your phone. Um, and, you know, she was the CEO, of course, of Yahoo from 2012 to 2017, which, uh, you know, I think for people internally, they have a different opinion of the people externally <laughs> have about uh, her tenure there. And then, of course, her, her real claim to fame was, you know, being employee number 20 at Google. Um, and, you know, she built a lot of the core functionality and services that exist at Google um, today. And so uh, I was curious, you know, kind of your thoughts, Ryan, a little bit here on, uh, you know, what do you, what do you <laughs> think of my Marissa Meyer and what do you think of her? Her latest venture here into Lumi Labs. I mean, the 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 to to work it in reverse, like the what I've been waiting for from Lumi Labs is sort of like you know, put up you know, give me something to to play with because the the their application availability and stuff is very early and not generally available, and even the stuff that they play with isn't you know, or that they talk about in the article and stuff. I don't know that you can actually. Uh, get it just off, you know, offhand. So there's still very much, you know, like it would be a self startup by any other terms, except for it's Marissa. So it's not because it's in the news. Um, I kind of want to see what they'll do. I think that, you know, one of the things that she spearheaded while I was at Yahoo was a lot of the, the weather app stuff and, and, and her, her views on mobile, you know, for a company at the time that was really trying to figure out whether it was a content company or a technology company, her views on mobile were, you know, very different from what we were used to for the last few years since the previous CEOs and, had, you know, she's very opinionated, very data-driven and had, you know, introduced some really cool mobile uh, experiences during that time. And so I think that, you know, she's got a good track record of, of that kind of delivery. And so I look forward to what they're doing, but I want to see it. Um, Yahoo you know, and cool that, mobile apps don't really correlate in my brain, but <laughs> for a long time, Yahoo Weather was the best app you could have on your phone. I swear. But uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's you know now it's now it's not you know if you compare it to weather apps now, it's not the greatest thing in the world. But you know you know like the a lot of that was you know setting the tone, and I, I forget the like dark sky and, you know, that kind of th- stuff where, you know, they, they sort of were, came from that some sort of similar design strategy and really just focusing on the usability. And, you know, it was also a time where the, the conversations are, should we develop an app or just do a browser extension kind of thing that your phone launches when you click the app button, right? Those were still very, in you know, topic questions. And so, the, you know, like, eh. What, what kind um, of year are we talking for, the, for this stuff? 
I'm guessing. I mean, my you know my memory. I'm guessing it'd be 2015. Okay. There. So you're not the you know it wasn't like the the early days where your apps are like literally you know web a, a, a bookmark on your home <laughs> screen, <laughs> but it was you know not not too much far past that. But you know it's a you know we you know apps on your television were was still brand new, and so a lot of work was done developing, you know, a Yahoo app on the TV, which wasn't great. Um, if I'm honest, um, I still hate most TV apps, so yeah, it hasn't changed, but you know, like really for me, you know, being sort of an internal, you know, infrastructure aimed person, like what I really appreciated was the, was the, the, the way that data was communicated out and the way that data drove decisions and the level of, sort of transparency that she brought to the company um, was was night and day, right? There was, you know, having, you know, a weekly all hands, okay, but then having the content that was going to be spoken about the all hands be community driven, where you could vote on what the topics and the questions were going to be for every week. So you had this, you had this direct access that at a company that was 14,000 people was unheard of. And so it was, it was, it was a cool time. Like it, it didn't succeed, obviously. Like we, you know, like it was the only reason it lasted as long as it did was because of an investment that she didn't make that was done that she got to inherit. So, you know, um, but yeah. So you liked her, but she's also terrible. That's what I heard. (laughs) No, she just didn't succeed. Right. Like her, the only way she could have succeeded is by inventing the next iPod. Right. That was the challenge she had for success. And it wasn't going to come. Yeah, it was definitely a business in heavy decline at that point. Mm-hmm. I tried to do become a news site and really you know steer into their portal story. Then they tried to become a media company, and then mm-hmm. they kind of became a nothing. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, it 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 tried to do so many things, but didn't fully commit. Right? They had the opportunity to go really deep into generating content the same way that Netflix did. They could have purchased Netflix, could have purchased Google. Like they were unwilling to really put it out there to succeed. And that hesitancy meant that everyone else got to, to eat their lunch. You know, Google did it for advertising technology and then Netflix did it for generating content. And then by the time Marissa was trying to do it for, for mobile app development, that kind of thing, like it was, I think it was the cards were already dealt. I still use Yahoo for finance, actually. Mm-hmm. I used to use as well. Um, I, I would say that in my dating era, I used Yahoo personals <laughs> as well, <laughs> you know, so a lot of, a lot of, uh, Yahoo things that I used back when I was younger, but, uh, you know, now I, I rarely ever go there because there's mm-hmm. no reason to, <laughs> for me at least, but, uh, yeah. I, I think finance is the only hanger. I mean, I have uh, Yahoo mail, which, but I admittedly hate that. So, but even, you know, even finance is really a shale, you know, it's not as good as it used to be, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, there's not as much, you know, not as much community there. There's not as many conversations yeah. that happen. I used to love to go, you know, read all these comments people were writing about a stock ticker and see what they had to say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of it's just trolling social media stuff, but some of it's also kind of interesting. It's, you know, some interesting insights or things I hadn't thought about. So, you know, on really big stocks, you still get that, but on smaller stocks, you don't really get that as much as you, you did back yeah. 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, you kill a community and it, it really loses a lot of value. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're getting to watch on Twitter right now. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? What's that again? <laughs> <laughs> it's that dumpster fire. That wasteland. Right <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It's an interesting product they're building, though. I, I think it's Luma that builds a um, contact app based uh, Sunshine. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a, and I actually downloaded it because I hadn't. I remember when she created, you know, the company, and she was going to create this app, but I hadn't realized it got released for the iPhone. So I went and looked at it. Oh, I didn't realize it was released either. Yeah, so I downloaded it and started playing with it. But yeah, it's it's you know for contact management, it has a lot of really great data and it imports a lot of interesting things. And you know, I found I had forty five duplicates in my contacts already, and so I was able to clear those out. And so yeah, I'm going to play with it some more. But uh, you know, it's definitely not a company that's going to be. A billion dollar, you know, Google type company, but you know this this is the first product they've really invested in. Maybe they have a bunch of these little base hits, and those turn into successful companies over time. But you know, it's only twenty five people today. The company, so it's, it's very yeah, small. she's counting her money. Like they, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a bit of a hobby company. Not, you know? not doing it for the cash right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when Yahoo, yeah, she got a great golden parachute on her exit out of that. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she got she got a good salary. Was hurting she, before that. Yeah, she was doing just fine from Google and the IPO of Google. She was, doing, you know, then she got lots of stock at Yahoo and did quite well mm-hmm. on that. And then, yeah, I'm sure she got a lovely golden parachute. So it's probably one of these situations she never has to work again. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure that's the case. I mean, they could have. They could have. It only costs two dollars or three dollars though, with a potential user base of a, a billion people. That's still worth something. Yeah, no, no, it's not. You know, it's worth building, and it's an area that people are really sensitive about. You know, if you screw up my contacts, I'm going to be really mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, that's a, a definitely a sensitive area. Yeah, second only to losing the baby pictures in Google Photos. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Was there a story there, Jonathan? Oh, <laughs> uh, um, yes, yes, no. Google uh, announced that they were going to start deleting inactive accounts, which accounts that haven't been used in. A couple of years, and they're doing it to stop people opening spam accounts and just using them, and then throwing them away. But of course, there's a lot of people who've opened accounts for their kids years ago in their kids' names and never logged in, or like they encourage people to open accounts and then like email them pictures and things over the years, so that when yeah. they became old enough, they could log in and see this amazing history of stuff. All going to get trashed. Um, and there's like different rules. So if you if you pay for OneDrive. OneDrive, Google One, whatever it's called, they're all the same. Google uh, OneDrive. Then, um, then that counts as checking in. If you have the account on Android phone, that counts as checking in. But there's things excluded from that, which is Google Photos. So if you've got Google Photos in an account and you don't visit the website or use the app to do something with a picture, they will delete your stuff. So, you know, be careful. <laughs> Be very I was expecting your wife yelling at you over like losing all the baby pictures because you know something. No, she, she doesn't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> and she doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> I, I doubt that very much. <laughs> she listens to me all the time. My yeah. wife, my wife doesn't listen to the podcast anymore. Either. She's like, you know, I, I like hearing you do it and I'm glad you're doing the podcast, but I, I, I don't understand any of it. So she stopped listening a long time ago. Yeah, she has to listen to me most of the time, choosing to listen to me when she doesn't have to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Completely it's just, different. It's just too much. Completely yeah. different. <laughs> now, I guess it's different with a, with a first kid. With a first kid, you keep loads of things. We've got boxes mm-hmm. of stuff. Oh, look, this is their first whatever. And then with the second kid, it's like, as long as I've got you know a picture they drew last week, I don't care. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah. It is sort of funny how that works out with your kids. Like, yeah, the first mm-hmm. one, you have all these things and... You, know, you did all these things for them, and all, the second comes along, and you're just like, "Yeah, we're not going to do that." <laughs> now that there's face recognition, you have metrics to prove it. Yep. Yes. <laughs> I have numbers of photos per kid, and it's just like, "Ooh." 
per year that they were alive. Yeah, you're uh-huh. gonna get in trouble at one point. Uh-huh. Just picture like a bad teenager yelling at you, like, "I looked it up, and you only have 15 pictures of me. You have 500 pictures of them from ages yeah. six months to one year. What the hell?" <laughs> it's true. All right. Well, now we now we just rat hold onto. We should, we should probably go before yeah, we continue. Yeah, yeah. All right, guys. Have a good night. Talk to you uh, next week in the club. See ya.